Turn in your Bibles, if you would, please, to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. We're continuing in our series on the parables, looking at the Pharisee and the tax collector uh, in verses 9 through 14. Um, In preparing for uh, preaching this morning, um, I read that Martin Luther preached 18 sermons on these, these verses. I'm not going to preach 18 sermons on these verses, all right? But you might ask yourself, why, why did he preach so many sermons on this one passage? Well, the clue is found in verse 14, and it's the point for which Jesus tells this particular parable. This parable is not about prayer, though it has lessons to teach us. This parable is not about pride and humility, though this lesson also has lessons to teach us. This parable is about who is righteous before God. Who does God accept as righteous? So with that in mind, let's pray and then read the text. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we come to your word and are so thankful that you have taken the initiative to speak and that you are a speaking God. We give you thanks also that you have given us ears by which we might hear a variety of sounds in the world in which we live. But we know that we are dependent upon your Holy Spirit to give us ears to hear what you would say to us this morning. So give us those ears, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. Let's read verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Three points this morning. Uh, First of all, the Pharisee, secondly, the publican, and thirdly, the principles. J.C. Ryle, who is one of my favorite uh, commentators on uh, the Gospels, uh, said this, The sin sin which the Lord denounces here is self-righteousness. We are all naturally self-righteous. It is the family disease of all the children of Adam. From the highest to the lowest... We think more highly of ourselves than we ought to do. We secretly flatter ourselves that we are not so bad as some and that we have something to recommend us to the favor of God. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Let's consider first the Pharisee. Now, most of us as good students of the Bible would be aware of the fact that the Pharisees in Jesus' day were considered to be the religious elite. 
they were considered that if anybody was to get to heaven, it would be the Pharisees. Of course, we don't have that particular grouping in our society today, but we might say that the Pharisee would be likened maybe to a Supreme Court justice or some high-honored person in our social circles. But look at verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Here is a man who is proud, a man who is self-absorbed, a man that is self-loving, self-centered, and is praying a self-congratulatory prayer. He is the personification the embodiment, the epitome of why Jesus tells this parable in verse 9. Someone who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Notice all the verbs in the text, look, are first person singular. I thank you that I am not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I, 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 Such a do. The emphasis in his prayer is on his personal merit. Here, 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 he gives verbal expression to a religion of me. Look at what I've done. God will accept me because of I'm not like this, and I do this. His mistake is to compare himself to others. Look at the text. I thank you that I'm not like other men. I am not an extortioner. I am not unjust. I am not an adulterer. And I'm certainly not like this tax collector. Why don't people compare themselves to the best of society instead of the worst? Well, because inherently, you and I are aware that we won't measure up. And we compare ourselves to the worst because we're proud and think we're better than others. Pharisee lists his negative virtues there in verse 11. He's not like others. He's looked down on them. He despises them utterly with contempt. You can hear it in his prayer. And then he goes on to list minor, petty Pieties, positives. Look, I give tithes of all that I get, and I fast twice a week. If you're a very good student of the Bible, you'd know that this is far in excess of what the law requires. The law required one to fast, a Jew to fast, only on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, but he fasts twice a week. The law required only that you tithe on your increase. That is, for most of us, it would be our salary or our business income. But he tithes on all that he gets. Proud of what he does. Note what's not said in this prayer. Look at the text. There is no thanksgiving given to God. There is no thanks to God for God. There's no confession of sin. There's no sense of need. There's no penitence. There's no humility. There's no charity. 
This is ever and always the spiritual barometer of those who are aware of their sin and their need of a Savior. Think, for example, of Adam and Eve right at the beginning of history. Adam and Eve, when they sinned against God and ate of that forbidden fruit, what was the first thing they did? They ran and hid from God. When God came and said to them, where are you? They said, we hid because we were naked and afraid. Or think of Job. You'll remember the story of Job, of course, which begins, we're told, right in the very first uh, verse of the book of Job, that Job was a righteous man. Job loses all his possessions. Job loses all his family. He goes on. He goes through the whole story of the book of Job, 40 chapters where his friends are coming to him, trying to explain to him why it is that he has experienced this harshness from God. And then in chapter 40, Job has the audacity to question God. He puts God in the dock. And God has to put him in his place. and says, who are you? Who do you think you are? Where were you when I formed the stars? Where were you when I did this? Who are you to talk to me like this? Remember Job's response? I repent in dust and ashes. Remember Isaiah? Chapter 6. Isaiah. We see Isaiah appear before the Lord, high and mighty, and just the hem of his robe fill the temple. Think of Yankee Stadium. Just the hem of his robe filled Yankee Stadium. What a majestic, awesome vision this must have been. And the angels are there in antiphonal chorus. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. You remember Isaiah's response? An appropriate one. Woe is me. You know, I was raised in the hippy-dippy generation. We might have been tempted to say, wow, man. Isaiah's response is appropriate. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips, and mine eyes have seen the king. Do you remember Peter in the boat out on the lake when Jesus performed that miracle? What his response was? Away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Do you see any hint of that in the Pharisee? None of it. None of it. Just self-congratulations. As if he says, God should be glad to have somebody like me. By contrast, look at the tax collector. Now, we considered this in our 1030 service, but for the benefit of those that you weren't there and may not be completely familiar with what we find in the Bible, tax collectors were uh, Jewish traitors to the Jewish people. They were traitors because they were collecting taxes for the Roman Empire. And not only were they traitors serving the Roman oppressors, but they were thieves because as they collected taxes, they would often fill their own pockets with excess of, uh, in excess, money in excess of what the tax actually required. So tax collectors would have been the scum of the earth. They would have been the lowest of the low amongst the Jewish people. If anybody was ever going to get to heaven, nobody like a tax collector would ever get to heaven because they were the worst of the worst. They were traitors. They were thieves. 
Look at the tax collector. Verse 13. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. What a profound awareness of sin. He doesn't draw near, he stands at a distance. He can't even look up to heaven. He beats his breast continually, we're told. He beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. For those of us Protestants that are not familiar with bodily postures, beating one's chest was a sign of contrition, a sign of sorrow for sin. And so the tax collector exhibited It's a simple, humble prayer, is it not? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's one of the shortest prayers in the Bible. There's only seven words. In the original Greek in which Luke writes this, there are only six words. And literally, it's God, be merciful to me, the sinner. There's a definite article there in the Greek. It's not just one amongst many sinners. He says, no, I am the sinner. Like Paul, right? I am the chief of sinners. God, be merciful to me. And the word here specifically is for merciful is to be propitiated to me. Now, boys and girls, that word is a word that is big, all right, but don't be afraid of it. It simply means to turn aside God's wrath. You see, because of sin, all right, each and every one of us as a descendant of Adam and Eve are alienated from God, all right, and we are under his wrath. And propitiation is the act by which the wrath of God as a just condemnation of sin is turned aside. And that's what he prays. God, be propitiated to me. Let your anger be removed. Turn your wrath away from me. James Montgomery Boyce, in an excellent explanation of this, for those of us that don't have Old Testament background uh, lies behind this, says this. The word translated have mercy on is the verb form of the word for the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant in the Jewish temple, Hilasterion. Therefore, it could literally be translated, be mercy seated toward me, or treat me as one who comes on the basis of the blood shed on the mercy seat as an offering for sins. A little bit more insight into this prayer. Boyce goes on, he says, The Ark of the Covenant was a wooden box about a yard long, covered with gold and containing the stone tables of the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, the Covenant. The lid of that box was the mercy seat, constructed of pure gold, and having on each end of it angels whose outstretched wings went backward and upward, almost meeting over the center of the mercy seat. Between those outstretched wings, God was imagined to dwell symbolically. As it stands, the ark is a picture of judgment intended to produce dread in the worshiper through a knowledge of his or her sin. For what does God see as he looks down from between the wings of the angels? He sees the law of Moses that you and I have broken. 
and he sees that he must act towards us as judge. But here is where the mercy seat comes in, Boyce says. And here is why it is called the mercy seat. Upon that covering of the ark once a year, an animal that had been killed moments before in the courtyard of the temple, that animal was a substitute. It was an innocent victim, dying in the place of the sinful people who deserved to die. Now, when God looks down from between the outstretched wings of the angels, he sees not the law of Moses that we have broken, but the blood of the innocent victim. He sees that punishment has been meted out. Now his love goes out in mercy to save the one who comes to him through faith in that sacrifice. Now do you understand the prayer more clearly? God be mercy seated toward me. God accept the blood of a substitute for me. God accept a sacrifice who dies instead of me who deserves to die. The publican, the tax collector, knew his need of mercy and grace. Unlike the Pharisee who thought of God in the way of merit, here's all I've done for you. The Pharisee simply prayed for mercy. I remember some years ago in Queens, someone not related to anybody here today was dying. It was questionable as to whether or not he was a Christian, his family told me. But they asked that I come and meet with him. He was very close to death, most likely moments from passing from this life into the life to come. His family told me some of his background. It was not good. No reason to think that this person had led a life that would be pleasing in God's eyes or that was indicative of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And I remember meeting with him and talking to him. And as he related to me some of these things, I asked him to pray this prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I deserve nothing but death, judgment, and condemnation. Have mercy on me. And he said, I will pray that prayer. And he did. And then he died. In my work as a pastor, I have had to be in the presence of dying men and women many, many times. It's humbling. It's instructive to communicate the gospel to such people. Which brings us to the principles that are taught here. First of all, it teaches us a valuable lesson about God and a valuable lesson about the gospel. 
Look at verse 14. I tell you, this man, that is the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. I don't know about you, I often have people, when I witness to them, say, well, I'm a good person. And I often point to passages like this and others in the Bible, I say, well, good people go to hell. It's not goodness that God's look for. It's not niceness that God looks for. God looks for a contrite heart. Mercy, not merit, is what we learn here. Look at Romans chapter 4, just for another example, all right? Paul often makes it clear or clearer. Romans chapter 4, verse 5. And to the one who does not work, the one who does not perform, the one who does not obey, the one who does not think that what they do gains them favor with God, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. That's the God of the Bible. A God who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. That's why the tax collector went down to his house justified. His faith was counted to him as righteousness. And it's why the Pharisee is not. His self-congratulations, in God's eyes, were only self-condemnation. Look at Romans 5, verse 6. Same thing. Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. As we turn back to our text in Luke 18, this is the only place in the Gospels where propitiation and justification are taught together. Mercy, helasterion, propitiation, turning aside the wrath of God, and justification being made right with God, all right? The only place in the Gospels where they appear together. Paul, they appeared together all the time, which is why I said, look at Romans, it's clearer, right? We want to interpret less clear passages by more clear. But it's very instructive, isn't it, that these two things are in one passage, all right? Justification, being made right with God, is by faith. It's by grace. And it's in Christ alone. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. We just passed Reformation Day on October 31st. This is the battle of the Reformation was for one word in many respects. The Roman Catholic Church believes in justification by grace. The Roman Catholic Church believes in justification by faith. 
The Roman Catholic Church believes in justification because of Christ. They do not believe in that alone, though. Very important. That's the battle. It's a battle that continues today. If you think you have anything to offer to God that would make him accept you, you're in spiritual peril. The Pharisee just doesn't need to go farther down the road to meet the publican. He's on a different road altogether. True salvation is found only in humble dependence upon God. True salvation is found only in humble dependence upon his mercy. True salvation is found only in humble dependence on his grace. It is not a matter of doing your best. It is not a matter of doing more. It is not a matter of trying harder. It is not a matter that Jesus is one of only many ways. He's the only way. The words of the hymn we sing appropriately are nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. I pray you can echo the words of that hymn from the depths of your heart. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Second principle is found in verse 9. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. It is about as explicit a denunciation of self-righteousness as can be found. I began by quoting J.C. Ryle, and I hope you can echo the veracity of that statement for yourself. We are all inherently self-righteous. I am self-righteous. You are self-righteous. And Jesus here denounces self-righteousness. We all think we're better than others. Look at the text, though. Verse 11. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed, Thus God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He's robbing God of his glory by drawing attention to himself. He cheated God by whittling down God's high and holy standard of perfection. God doesn't grade on a curve. You tried. He's an adulterer because he's spiritually making love with himself and he's idolatrous. Every sin worship more than God. What about you? 
You think you're better? You think you're better because you belong to Messiah's Reformed Fellowship? Think you're better because you're in a confessionally Reformed church? Think you're better than Pentecostals? Think you're better than Arminians? The ground is level at Calvary. The cure for self-righteousness is self-knowledge. To see what's in your heart and to see what's in my heart. Compare yourself not to others, but compare yourself to God, whose righteous, just, and holy character is reflected in his law, which is the standard of righteousness. One author put it this way. He said, God is still carrying, calling Pharisees to a deeper relationship through, with him through the word and the spirit in grace. It goes something like this. Grace to you, Pharisee. Stand in the light and own your sin. Not in the abstract, we're all sinners, but in person. Be merciful to me, the sinner. Daily recognize and repent of your sinful pride and receive my forgiveness. Confess that I alone am good and receive my goodness in your life as my gift. Then walk in my grace. He goes on and says, how quickly we forget that Christ's church is a church of sinners, albeit saved sinners being saved. By grace, we grow in the experiential knowledge of God, as well as in the experiential knowledge of ourselves. By grace, we can exalt in God's holy standard while becoming more humble and less defensive. By grace, we can become more open to the searching of the Spirit and the admonitions of our brothers and sisters. By grace, we can increasingly develop into the kind of communities that see God alone as good. And importantly, note, he concludes... The more we do so, the more sinners will feel welcome in our midst. Are sinners welcomed in our midst? Or do we see ourselves as better and more deserving than they? Third principle. What do we learn from the Pharisee? That even piety can be a barrier between man and God. He was proud of his piety. John Murray, who used to teach systematic theology at Westminster Theological Seminary, had a brilliant word for this in his collected writings. He called this piosity. <laughs> The difference between piety and piosity. Piosity was thinking, doing, thinking that something is beyond what God requires. Isn't that what the Pharisee did? More holy than what God requires. It's where legalism comes in, isn't it? Don't drink, don't chew, don't go with boys that do. That's what it means to be holy. Even piety can be a barrier. Fourthly, what do we learn? What do we learn from the tax collector? We do learn a lesson about prayer. 
True prayer is first concerned with honoring God himself. This is what we were supposed to learn when Jesus taught us how to pray, remember? Jesus taught his disciples, pray then like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God first. God first. God first. It's a lesson, can I just be honest with you? I need to remind myself of all the time, even in congregational prayer. I quickly get the bulletin out, and I look at the list of things that need to be prayed for. I'm looking at the watch and time, and I'm saying, oh, we've just got to get to the list and get through these prayers. True prayer is first concerned with honoring God. God first, God first, God first. Richard Pratt wrote a great book, and the title of it just went right out of my head as I thought of his name. Um, Julie, can you help me? What was that? Pray with your eyes open. Thank you very much. Praying with your eyes open. Going through the Psalms and looking at how the Psalms put God first in their prayers. I commend that book to you. It's a lesson I still need to learn after 30-odd years in ministry. God first. God first. Give to God the glory due his name before getting from God the laundry list. And the last principle we learn is in verse 14, the second half of that verse. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. There is a lesson about pride here. It's not primarily about pride. Pride is one of the seven deadly sins. Are you proud? Did you see somebody like that in the mirror this morning? I did. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But, the buts in the Bible are very important. But, the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's a great encouragement to everyone who feels their sin and their sinfulness and cries for mercy. It's the gracious, merciful promise of a gracious, merciful God. God, be merciful to me, the chief of sinners. I will exalt you my child. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we ask that we would take these lessons to heart. We ask that you might help us to live out of them each and every day. And we ask that you would grant us grace and your Holy Spirit to do so. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.